James 4.17 says this, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Is there anybody here who has ever owned a Ford Pinto? Anybody? You're lucky to be here. Well, I think we have a picture of it here. Beautiful car, picture one. And uh, the, the Ford Pinto was a car that was developed in about 1968. And uh, during that time frame, uh, foreign imports were kind of taking a good share of the market share from Ford and other American companies. And so Ford didn't really have a fuel-efficient smaller car uh, that, that looked nice. And so uh, one of the executives at Ford named Lee Iacocca had this ambitious plan to uh, design this Ford Pinto. And he had very specific requirements for this project. Number one, it had to be less than $2,000 and it had to weigh less than 2,000 pounds for fuel efficiency. Not only that, he wanted to complete the project in 25 months. Now usually it would take 43 months for a car to go from concept to being on the lot. And so his engineers worked tirelessly to make this happen and they were able to meet the deadline. Uh, September 11th, 1970, uh, the cars were on the lots. By 1971, January, 100,000 units were sold. In its 10-year span, it sold about 3 million-plus vehicles. But there was a little problem with the Ford Pinto. And you might be able to see it in this diagram here. If you see in this diagram here, the fuel tank is right here in the back. And so you have this little tiny piece of a bumper in the back, and then you have the fuel tank. So what happens if you get rear-ended in a Ford Pinto? Most likely, gas is going to come out and possibly explode the whole car. A number of times this happened. The first uh, high-profile case was in May 1972. There was a lady named Lily Gray. She was traveling down the road with her neighbor. Uh, neighbor's name was Richard Grimshaw. And they were struck from behind, 30 miles an hour. The car went up in flames. Lily Gray died. Uh, the boy, 12-year-old boy, Richard, survived, but he had uh, burns over 90% of his body. Had to have 60 surgeries, but he was alive. Of course, after that, his family filed a lawsuit against Ford. Went to trial in 1977. And what they discovered was apparently Ford knew about the issue with the car. Apparently they knew about it even when they were designing the car, but they didn't want to slow production and they didn't want to pay what was necessary to fix it. There was one memo called the Pinto Memo. And then the Pinto Memo, they, uh, the engineers from Ford kind of analyzed their range of vehicles and analyzed the uh, likelihood of fuel leaking out of those vehicles and they determined it would cost about 11 to 15 dollars per vehicle to fix these issues but what they decided was they decided that it was better that it was more cost effective to pay off the burn victims and those who were part of these accidents than it would be to fix all of these cars and so they chose to do nothing of course there was a good deal of public outrage they were slapped with a $125 million uh, settlement. Eventually they didn't have to pay that full amount, but that 
amount represented the profits that were made on all the years of the, the Pinto was sold up to that point. Finally, 1978, 1.5 million Pintos were recalled from 1971 to 1976. Lee Iococo was uh, fired, but the lawsuits weren't over. One source I read suggested that there was 118 lawsuits uh, against Ford regarding the Ford Pinto. And the, this really tarnished Ford's name, and they got this reputation that they were more interested in profits than safety. Uh, Lee Iacocca himself was noted as saying that safety doesn't sell. And so there was this huge public backlash. And this, the people had uh, signs on the back of their cars that said, like, don't follow me, this car is explosive. And so there was this big public backlash. But what's interesting is that after the fact, people started to research the statistics related to the Ford Pinto. And what they discovered was the fatalities in the Ford Pinto weren't any higher than other vehicles in that class. Some of them, they were actually lower. For example, in 1975, there were less fatalities in the Ford Pinto than there were in the Toyota Corolla, the Datsun, or the VW Bug. And yet everybody knew about the Ford Pinto and the fact that it could explode. Now, why was it so significant? Why did... Was there such public backlash? I think it was be not because of the fatalities. It was because of the fact that Ford knew that there was a problem. They could have fixed it for 11 to $15 per car, and yet they chose to do nothing. Sometimes not doing something right is almost as bad as doing something wrong. I mean, we've seen this in the scandal of the Catholic Church over the last several decades. Uh, there have been Many clergy in the Catholic Church who have been accused of sexual misconduct or molestation, uh, a whole host of different things, and that's absolutely terrible and horrible. But even worse than that, it's been discovered that sometimes these issues were covered up, that priests who were accused of such things, rather than being brought to justice, were maybe moved to a different parish or a different school. We saw this with the case of Jerry Sandusky, who uh, molested uh, Ten children over the course of 15 years, and that's all that they know about, and maybe even more. And yet they discovered that there were a number of people at Penn State who knew about what was happening. And yet they didn't want to tarnish the name of the school, didn't want to create a conflict, and so they chose to do nothing. I mean, how do you get to a place where these things are allowed to happen in our culture and nobody does anything about them? There's probably a lot of reasons, but I think... Maybe one reason is that we're so focused on sins of commission that we forget about sins of omission. We're so focused on sins of commission. We're so focused upon not doing wrong things. And those wrong things, there's consequences for doing wrong things. We know that we shouldn't lie or we shouldn't steal or we shouldn't commit adultery. And so we avoid these things because we know that these things are bad, but we don't consider what we should be doing. We think about what we shouldn't be doing, but we don't think about what we should be doing. When I was in kindergarten, I was a really quiet kid, and I was terrified of getting in trouble. And I remember going to school, I'd hardly said anything to anybody. Always followed the teacher's uh, direction to the letter. And I remember that we had this passion play, and I was chosen to be Jesus for the passion play. And I thought to myself, that's pretty special. I must be like Jesus. And I think my teacher saw me like that because I was compliant. 
Was, it, was I really like Jesus any more than the other kids? Probably not. I was just quiet. I just was afraid of getting in, in trouble, so I just went along with what the teacher said. But we have that kind of mindset that people who are compliant, that go along with social norms, those are the people that are righteous and godly. And yet this passage reminds us that they're not only sins of commission. It's not just about avoiding bad things. But sometimes failing to act can be just as bad as doing something wrong. The problem in the story is Eli's sons. I love the way that the narrator of the story describes the sons. He's very direct and very blunt. He says, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Don't pull, doesn't pull any punches. They're worthless men. They don't know the Lord. It's not that they didn't know about the Lord. They didn't have a relationship with the Lord. And so they served in the temple. They were priests of the Lord. And as priests of the Lord, they were responsible for doing a number of things. And they were also able to take from some of the sacrifices to feed themselves. Just like a pastor or a minister is paid by a church. In that context, the priests were able to eat some of the offerings that came in. And that's described in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 3 to 5. It says, and this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks and the stomachs, the stomach, the first fruits of, the, of your grain, of your wine and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all the tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So God had provided a way for these priests to provide for themselves and they weren't going hungry and yet these priests, the sons of Eli, decide that the offerings of God are going to be treated like a buffet. Now we don't know exactly what is happening, whether there's two sins here or happening or one sin, probably two sins. But if that's the case, the first is that when the sacrifice is being boiled, what they would do is take a fork, a kind of a probably bigger than a fork that we would know, like a pitchfork. And they would dip it into the boiling pot and then whatever came out, which would probably be a substantial portion, would be their portion. Other times it says that they preferred that the meat would be roasted. And so the servant of Eli's sons would come and they would say, don't, don't uh, roast it, don't boil it, just give it to us raw and go on your way. And then the person might say, well, why don't we just burn the fat and then you can have whatever is left over. And in doing that, it's remarkable because they were following the, the teaching of the law and trying to honor God by burning the fat. And yet the priest, he has no intention of following God's law. He just wants what's best for himself. And so he, he, the servants of the priest say, just give it to us or we're going to take it by force. I mean, they have no interest in following the will of God. They have no interest in honoring God or serving God. They're just trying to fulfill their own appetites. And not only that, we see later that they're also sleeping with uh, the women who were servants in the temple and leading them astray. In contrast to these two characters, we see Samuel. And we see this kind of wordplay. There's a Hebrew word called na'ar, which means boy or young man. And we see this, uh, these two sons described as Na'ar, the boys, and then Samuel, the boy, described as being righteous. Samuel's ministering before the Lord. Samuel's growing in favor with God and man, and yet Eli, his sons, have no interest in following after God. And so Eli decides it's time to talk to his sons about what's happening. 
And he comes to him and he says, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Now it's interesting to me that he says that. He says, I hear of all your evil deeds from all the people. Now Eli has been a priest for a number of years. It seems very suspicious to me that he'd only be hearing about it from other people. I mean, I guess it's possible, that, I mean, he's, it says in the text he's very old at this point. I guess it's possible that after he kind of retired, so to speak, from, the, from working in the temple, his sons kind of took a terrible turn from the worst, but most likely his sons had been doing these things for years and years and years. And yet he ignores it until the cry of the people comes up and the people keep talking about how bad these priests are. And so Eli says, I, I've heard some bad things about you. I heard some bad things are happening. And note also that Eli doesn't fully rebuke his sons. He's like, there's a bad report going around. Probably not a good thing. I mean, if, if you sin against God, who's going to intercede for you? And he speaks of the consequences of that, but he starts, stops short of a full rebuke. I mean, imagine this situation. I mean, I'm a pastor, not a priest. There's big differences between an Old Testament priest and a pastor. But there are a few similarities. So let's say that I'm using the church for my own benefit. So let's say that I decide we're not going to do church in the park anymore. We're not going to do outreach events anymore. And I go to our treasurer, Steve, after the service. And I say, hey, do whatever you have to do to keep the lights on. Uh, but then whatever else, just, just write me a check. And I'm driving a Lamborghini around. And the church is in disrepair. We're not doing any outreach anymore. And I'm just using everything for my own benefit. And we have board meetings. And I say, hey, if you don't do what I want, uh, I'm going to mess you up. And thread in the board members and imagine that I'm having affairs with multiple members of the church and doing all these terrible things. Now my dad, he's a believer. He's been a Christian for a number of years, part of this church. What do you think my dad would say to me at that point? Do you think he'd say to me, hey, uh, I heard some bad things are happening. Probably not a, probably not a good idea. You might want to change some things. I imagine he would be, like, he doesn't get very angry, but I imagine he would be livid. Like, what in the world are you doing? What are you doing to God's church? You have no business being a part of this church anymore. Like, you need to leave now. My, that's my dad who loves me, but if I did stuff like that, I imagine he would be angry. And yet Eli here is just like, I eh, heard some bad things about you, probably not a good idea. Probably should change, and of course, these sons don't change. And it says in the text that it was the Lord's will to put them to death. What does that mean? I, I think it means that they had been doing this for such a long time that God has decided he's going to judge them. You know, and that's kind of evidence that Eli maybe has known what's been going on for quite some time because God's at a point where it's like, there's no, there's no more chance of repentance. They're done. We are, I'm going to judge them. And so Eli chooses to do next to nothing. And then it says in the text that a man of God comes to Eli. We don't know the name of this man of God. We know that he's a prophet who speaks on behalf of God. He comes to Eli and he speaks a word of judgment. And I find the word of judgment that he speaks very interesting in verse 29. 
He says this to Eli, Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded from my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. I mean, this is shocking in a sense to me because to our knowledge, we don't know a lot about Eli. We don't see a lot about his, uh, how he ministered in the temple. But as far as we know, he didn't do these things. He didn't mismanage the things of God. He didn't take advantage of God's offering. He didn't defraud the ladies in the temple. He didn't do any of these things. And yet God says to him, you has scorned my sacrifices and my offering. He says, you have honored your sons above me. Eli, if you wanted to honor me, you should have done something. And yet my, your sons have made a mockery of my temple. Your sons have led people away from the worship of the Lord. Your sons have defrauded the ladies in the temple. And yet you honor your sons above me and you choose to do nothing. You can imagine Eli saying, but I didn't do anything wrong. I mean, I, I, I served you faithfully. I did everything required in the law. And you can imagine God saying, yeah, but your sons ruined my temple and you didn't do anything about it. It was a sin of omission. It was not that he himself did something wrong, but he failed to do what was right. I think this passage teaches us something very important. And I think it teaches us that godly people are not passive people. Godly people are not passive people. Godly people are not simply about avoiding bad things, but about doing good things, about bringing forth the kingdom of God among the affairs of men. And we see this throughout Scripture in a number of places. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus cares, talks about those who care for the needy and the hurting and those who don't care for the needy and the hurting. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 25. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now the goats, those who uh, didn't help those who were in need, they might have some pretty compelling arguments. I mean, you can imagine one of them saying, Jesus, I'm not the one who made that person hungry and thirsty. I mean, if you want to blame someone, you can blame the government bureaucrats or the corporations that took advantage of them and made them poor. I mean, I, I didn't cause that situation. You could say, well, I, Jesus, I didn't cause that person to be a stranger. I mean, I'm not the one that made that person leave their homeland and go to a strange land, and I had nothing to do with that. Jesus, I didn't make that person sick. I had nothing to do with that. I'm not a doctor. 
I didn't make them sick. has nothing to do with me. Jesus, that person who's in prison, he's in prison because he did things that were wrong. I didn't put him there, and so why should I be held responsible for what he's doing? You can imagine Jesus saying, no, you didn't cause it, but you could have done something, and he chose to do nothing. You think about the story of the Good Samaritan. Man's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's attacked by thieves. The thieves rob him, leave him for dead on the side of the road. The priest, what does the priest do? He goes and walks by on the other side. The Levite does the same thing. The only one who helps is the Samaritan. You can imagine the priest and the Levite saying, hey, I didn't rob, rob this man. I didn't beat him. I didn't leave him for dead. I didn't do anything wrong. That's the point. You didn't do anything. You just walked by on the other side. You couldn't be bothered by the suffering of your fellow brother. Dr. Carl Menninger writes this in his book, Whatever Became of Sin. He says if a dozen people are in a lifeboat, one of them discovers a leak near, near where he's sitting, is there any doubt as to his responsibility? Not for having made the hole or for finding it, but for attempting to repair it. To ignore it or keep silent about it is almost equivalent to having made it. Thus, even in group situations and group actions, there's a degree of personal responsibility, either for doing or for not doing, or for declaring a position above it. The word sin involves these considerations, and upon this I base the usefulness of a revival of the concept, if not the word sin. So today I'd like for us all to consider a question. I mean... Oftentimes when we think about the things of God, we consider the question, what is God calling me not to do? When we think about that question, it's a pretty easy question to answer most of the time. I mean, we know what we shouldn't be doing. We know we shouldn't be lying or uh, doing a number, of, a host of, of different things. Maybe actually stopping those things might be difficult. We know we sh- what we shouldn't be doing. But the other question is more difficult. What should we be doing? What are we not doing that we should be doing in our lives? And the reason that's sometimes a more difficult question is because maybe there's no consequences if we don't do that thing. I mean, if you're walking down the road and you club somebody in the head, there's going to be a consequence for that. That's a bad thing that you did. But if you walk down the road and there's somebody who's homeless that's in need and you don't do anything, No one's going to hold you accountable to that. No one's going to question you about that. And so when we ask ourselves that question, what is God calling me to do? Oftentimes there's no consequences if we don't do those things. And nobody maybe will even know except for us and God. But I believe that God calls us to not just be passive, but to be active, to take initiative. Maybe it's in our relationship with God. Maybe it's beginning a routine of Bible reading and devotions. Maybe it's spending time with our family, leading them in worship. Maybe it's joining a Bible study community group. Maybe it's something physical or committing ourselves to exercise and be better stewards of our bodies. Maybe it's in our relationship with others. You know, this year I want to really emphasize the, the, the idea of how can we be a neighbor to those around us, to those in our church family, in our physical families, and also in our communities. And we think about that question, how do I be a good neighbor? We don't be a good neighbor just by not doing bad things to our neighbor. I mean, that's good. We shouldn't do bad things to our neighbor. 
We need to do more than that. We need to reach out to them with the love of Christ. We need to be intentional with those opportunities that we have to share God's love with them. So maybe God is calling us to be more intentional. Maybe he's calling us to stand out against injustice. I mean, imagine if Jesus had been passive. Imagine if Jesus was only concerned with avoiding sins of commission. What would he have done? He would have come to the earth. He would have lived a sinless life, went up to heaven. That was the end, would be the end of the story. But Jesus was faithful to the mission that God gave him. He wasn't content just to have this life of holiness. He chose to love and to sacrifice for all of us so that we could experience life. And Jesus calls us to do the same thing, to be intentional, to reach out to those around us. Not just to be concerned about what we shouldn't do, but asking God the question, God, what would you call me to do today? How would you call me to love you more? How would you call me to love my neighbor more? There's a man by the name of Peter Molenberg, and he delivered, or allegedly delivered, one of the most dramatic sermons uh, in revolutionary history. He was a pastor, and he decided that he was going to become, uh, go into military. And he had kind of talked about the cause of freedom in many of his sermons, but for his last sermon, he wanted to make it very meaningful and impactful. So he got up for his last sermon, and he was preaching from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And in that uh, chapter, it says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And he went on with his message, and then he concluded his message by saying this, There's a time to preach, and there's a time to pray, but there's also a time to fight, and that time has come now. At that moment, he threw off his clerical garb to reveal military, a military uniform underneath. He then recruited the men of his congregation to go and fight for the cause of freedom. Men kissed their wives goodbye and walked down the aisle. The next day, 300 men, it was said, from his congregation and other congregations in the area went and joined General Washington to fight for the cause of freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a time for all things. There's a time for praying. There's a time for avoiding bad things. But there's also a time for fighting against darkness. There's also a time for taking initiative, refusing to be passive and just allow the status quo to rule, but taking initiative and to do whatever God calls us to do. And today is that day. We need to fight against darkness, fight against injustice with the love of Christ. Because if we're going to be godly people, we can't be passive people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you that your love isn't passive at all. That your love was willing to leave heaven, to leave your throne room and come down to the earth to become a baby and to live a perfect life, to avoid all sin, but also to reach out to die on the cross for all of us. We thank you for your love and your grace and the mercy you provide for us. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would be people who are not just concerned about avoiding bad things. We know that that's important to you. We know that you call us to be holy and to avoid the things that would defile us. We know that's important. But I pray that we wouldn't leave it there. But that we would be intentional. That we would reach out to those around us. 
and that we would do everything that you want us to do. Whether that's to share your love with a neighbor across the street or to go to the other side of the world and share your love with people who are far from you. Lord, save us from being passive. Save us from being on this journey of just going with the flow because we don't want to go with the flow. We want to go where you're going. Lord, lead us. Help us to be obedient. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.